0: This is play. Alex, Pastor John Piper recently shared seven reasons why Christians should not participate in fantasy sports gambling. Wait,
1: wait, wait. What are fantasy sports? Is that like Gandalf versus Darth Vader? Because, Nick, I got 50 bucks It says Gandalf wins every time. <laughs> <Nice>.
0: <laughs> fantasy, yeah, fantasy sports made up like uh, just like Gandalf and Darth Vader. At any rate, this is (laughs) Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, Preaching Minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist
1: for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, Philippians Chapter 2. And let that be a reminder to the audience to go read Philippians Chapter 2 better. Read Chapter 1 and 2, maybe the whole book won't take you very long. Then you can come back and dig into the chapters with us as we answer questions.
0: So Philippians 2, man, this is dense, um, especially right here from the beginning. Um, you have um, what some have called the kenosis hymn, and we'll work to break that down for you when we get there in verses 6 and following. And it's also got not just the deep Christological stuff, but you have very practical day-to-day stuff. Like verse 14 stands out, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, complaining or arguing, another version says. And um, so we got a lot of heavy lifting ahead of us. Alex, um, where do we begin? Well, I almost wish the... uh chapter wasn't broken up like
1: this because it just picks right off from where chapter 1 ends and so uh, I wish this was verse 31 instead of verse 1 but Mm -hmm. here we are in these first two verses picking up where we left off and it talks about if there's any encouragement, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love United in spirit, intent on one purpose. Uh, These are rhetorical statements. I think he knows there are these things that they have in common. So therefore, they need to be intent on this one purpose. Nick, what is the one purpose they are to be intent on there in verse 2?
0: Yeah, so um, my English standard says being in full accord in one mind. Um, That phrase, being in full accord is actually a single word in the original language. And it literally means um, together in soul. And I I believe this speaks to the harmony that Christians are to have. Christians are to be harmonious. They are to have souls that beat together in tune with Christ and with one another. And so that phrase, being in full accord, is connected to the one mind there as well. And I believe if you take those together, it can be rendered as something like together in soul, contemplating the same one thing. And I believe it emphasizes the desire of God, the desire of Christ, that can be summed up in a word which is like-mindedness. Does that make sense, Alex?
1: Yeah, I like the unity aspect you brought out there. Same mind, same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Interesting thinking about together in soul, contemplating the same one thing. I think that one thing there, the uh, singular purpose, isn't specifically mentioned in this verse because it probably is even building on top of what we mentioned at the end of chapter 1. It refers Mm -hmm. back to living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's chapter 1, verse 27. And so I think he's continuing that thought about living in that manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This all-encompassing intention then becomes the umbrella phrase which covers and gives motive to all Christian teachings and behavior. And so what do we do as Christians? What do we teach as Christians? It flows out of living in a manner worthy of the gospel. Well, Nick uh, in verse four, in what ways would the Philippians look out for each other's
0: interests? yeah, so um <clears throat> look each of you, uh, excuse me, let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others is what verse four says, and that's a call uh from the Holy Spirit through Paul to the Philippians and ultimately to us. Uh, it's a call for selflessness rather than selfishness. Uh, that's what should reign among these brethren is selflessness. Um, whatever efforts we exert in order to gain insight into the life into the lives of our brothers and sisters as we live life together, um, those efforts ought to be <clears throat> so that we can respond appropriately to their needs. Uh, we shouldn't be sticking our noses into people's business just so we can be busybodies and gadabouts and share, uh, did you hear what is happening in so-and-so's life? That's not what we're supposed to be about when it says look to the interests of others. Rather, it's a a selfless concern for the brethren. Uh, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, definitely. You could see how someone
1: might take this in the wrong way, right? So this verse doesn't eliminate... Uh, boundaries and uh, that we respect from other people and other believers. And when you think about it, we all have priorities to love and care for our own families, right? Paul says this himself, 1 Timothy 5, 8, if you don't care for your own family, you're worse than an unbeliever, uh, speaking about widows there. But yet, we do need to be aware of and seek to care for the needs of our spiritual family, too. And I think this mindset would come into play in all kinds of scenarios, this is sort of like a, a, a multiple concept. So uh, let's say you're considering giving financially to the church or to a brother in need, just like the Philippians did for Paul. We'll see that in chapter 4. Um, you would, yeah, be considering that as you look at the needs of your own family and the needs of your spiritual family. What about, um, let's say you have a skill set, you know, you have a certain jobs, certain set of skills you've built up over the years, you can use your knowledge and your resources outside of that secular workplace to help out a brother in Christ you know, like a a Christian mechanic who can help out a poor brother get his car fixed what about uh, the other side of that coin too like let's say you're a brother who uh, needs some job done for you and you're thinking about hiring that out to some sort of labor Uh, would you hire that out to a brother who has the skill to do that, would you consider them first to uh, benefit them and their family and their business? Um, I think the bottom line is that we seek what's best for our community of believers, and we start with our own families, and then we work our way out to uh, the congregation at large. So I, I tried to put a few real life examples in there, Nick. What do you think? Am I off?
0: No, I think that's <clears throat> I think that's right on the money, um, and and so. Uh I would emphasize um the genuineness of this as well. uh This shouldn't be a feigned thing where we're just you know pressing the flesh glad handing kind of this syrupy hey how you doing kind of fake persona, but rather um, a genuine real interest um in in others um so and I like the the practical application of that as well. Uh, so let's dive in here <clears throat> to verse uh, 6, first line of, uh, again, what some call the kenosis hymn. uh it talks about, though he was in the form of God, Alex, how did Christ exist in the form of God? All right, buckle,
1: buckle your seatbelts here for a second. We're going to take a little ride. So here's some things we do know, right? We believe already, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We know that's Jesus, so we're talking about Christ here existing in the form of God. Uh, later on in John 10, he'll say things like, I and the Father are one, and people will hear that, pick up stones to kill him, saying, hey, you've you've made yourself out to be God, but then Jesus quotes psalm 82 and he starts saying hey has it not been written in your own law i said you are gods and so this plurality idea of divine beings uh and jesus making himself out to be the same divine being that they know as yahweh um saying he and the father are one in that way he says your your scriptures teach this now at the time of christ there was a pretty established, well-established doctrine called the Jewish Two Powers in Heaven. And uh, that doctrine was basically a binatarian view of the Godhead as opposed to the Christian Trinitarian view. And they taught two Yahwehs. They thought there was one Yahweh, but he existed in two persons. There was the Invisible Father, and then there was the Visible One, whom the Father has put his name in. And that's often showing up as the angel of the Lord or the angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Now, the New Testament presents Jesus as the preeminent, only begotten. That's what that means there. Only begotten isn't uh, referring to anything sexual, like an only child. This is a phrase meant to explain uniqueness. This is a preeminent position that Jesus held as one of the sons of God. So, Jesus was the preeminent, only begotten Son of God who created everything with Yahweh. So God being one in the Old Testament was about Israel being loyal to just one God. It's Yahweh your God, the Lord your God, is one. And then um, Yahweh, whether visible or invisible, and that Yahweh was the one who was above all the other gods because they're created and Yahweh is not created. So this idea of preeminence again popping up So Jesus <laughs> shares in that preeminence And he shared in it before he became The Christ Before he put on human flesh So I think that's uh, The idea there Christ existed in the form of God In the person that we see in the Old Testament As the angel of the Lord The one whom Yahweh has put his name on And uh, there's more to it We can keep unfolding that But that's, that's what I think he's pointing at That's the Old Testament basis in my opinion what do you think, Nick?
0: No, we will keep unfolding it because uh, he's going to continue to to hit on some of these high points. Um, we don't typically, well, I guess we do sometimes. We we call out other um, other faith groups, um, and just just and, and we don't do it, to, you know, necessarily slam anybody, but just to point out that there are differences uh, in how people understand Jesus. For example, our Jehovah's Witness friends would just take everything you said, Alex, and say that's that's heretical. That's not what they believe about Jesus. Um, I think our Mormon friends might be in the same league with that because Jesus is just, he's an exalted man in that system, half-brother of uh, Lucifer, Satan, uh, in that system of belief. So, um, so there are differences uh, in how people understand Jesus. And uh, I'll just say that Our Jehovah's Witness friends and our Mormon friends are sadly mistaken. They uh, do not believe in the same Jesus that Paul and the other Apostles in the first century believed in and had faith in. Um, When Paul talks about that Jesus was in the form of God, uh, the the original language there is morphe. We get some English words from that. Uh, You can hear morph, right? But um, It means the essential attributes, nature, and character of the thing. So for Jesus to be in the form of God, it means that Christ Jesus was and is the possessor of the essential attributes, nature, and character of God. And so, Alex, to what you said, I'm going to add a hearty amen and uh, wholeheartedly concur that he is uh, 100% God. Um, So it's interesting then, with that in our hip pocket, we keep reading in verse 6, Paul goes on and says that he did not, Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Alex, in what way did Christ not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped?
1: Okay, this is pretty interesting. So here's what I think. Uh, The Father, who would be the uh, invisible Yahweh in the two powers in heaven idea, uh, he's the head of his divine council in heaven. Um, He's in charge. He's the boss. And at his right hand is Jesus. Now, I think he was there before the incarnation and after his ascension. He went back to the right hand of the Father. So Jesus acts as the right hand of the head of the council. He acts as the head of... Of the council with the Father, but still under the subjection of the Father, and this is important because it makes it sound like Jesus has always been in subjection to the Father. That's how their relationship works. First Corinthians chapter fifteen verses twenty-five through twenty-eight makes clear that Jesus was subject to the Father, uh, is currently subject to the Father, and even in the end will be subject to the Father. First Corinthians fifteen twenty-five through twenty-eight. So, Jesus became a man, and he died with these lit words on his lips: "Your will be done, Father, not mine and that's what he always does. Jesus would never try to dethrone, to usurp, to steal, or under any pretense at all, exercise an authority that does not come from the Father so I think this is at the heart of Christ, not regarding equality with God, a thing to be grasped. That is, he always has and will be loyal in subjection to the Father's headship. Now, um, having said that, if you think about Satan, the fallen one, that's not what he did. You go to Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14, which uses this analogy for uh, an earthly king and his fall and gives the picture of a supernatural king and his fall that king being satan um yes it says there satan did want the throne he wanted to sit uh on the mountain and in the seat of the most high and to make himself head of the council and when satan tried that it failed miserably although i personally think satan is still trying to do that um he probably thinks he can do it but that's what pride does to you. So that's that's the idea there is is Christ is co-creator with Yahweh. I think he's co-eternal with Yahweh as well. But he's always put himself in subjection to the Father's authority and that's how their relationship works. So isn't that interesting Nick how you can have two people who are equal but one is in subjection to the other? It makes you think it, about marriage, right? And men and women.
0: That I I think that's right on the money yeah that's uh it is interesting just the the inner workings of the godhead um and i like how you emphasized jesus christ the logos he was there at the beginning before the beginning you know how you want to say that that he's there he shares co-eternality with uh the father he's there now um And so building on that for my take on this, though he is eternally in the form of God, when Paul talks about he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, he didn't regard that equality with God a prize to be tenaciously retained or something that he had to desperately cling to. That's the idea there of grasped. It was always his. It was always his by right of being God the Son. Uh, And so uh, I think of other uh, Pauline writings uh, where he compares Jesus with Adam, the first Adam and the second Adam. Uh, The first Adam, he sought to grasp equality with God through pride and disobedience at the beginning. But the second Adam, who is Christ, he sought the pathway of lowly obedience on his way to exaltation, uh, and so uh, that's that's what came to my mind was the first Adam, second Adam bit. I liked your bit about the uh, the, the uh, Satan in his attempt to try and dethrone Yahweh, and how you know, he, he failed miserably and still continues to fail miserably at that. So. Um, I believe that's going to bring us to our tough text for today. Tough text. Well, Nick, our tough
1: text for the day builds on the last two questions that we've been unfolding here. And it has to deal with verse 7. Now, you mentioned this idea of kenosis. Uh, So why don't you unpack that? What's kenosis? What's cantonic and subcanonic theories? I don't know if I even said that right. Uh, (laughs) How about this? How did
0: Christ empty himself? Yeah, that's the big question here. So, okay, let's back up here and talk about kenosis, because I've been using that word, used it a couple times. Kenosis, it comes from the word in the original language that's used here for he emptied. Uh, in that phrase, he emptied himself. Uh, the Greek is ekenosin, and so we get kenosis there. From that, some call this passage verses 6 through 11, some call it the kenosis hymn because it has certain elements that look like a. it was probably an early church hymn, a song that the early church sang in their worship to Christ and to God. Uh, in that case, some have dated this uh, to within a decade of the death of Jesus, probably in the late 30s, even when this hymn was written. And all Paul is doing is taking it, plugging it into his argument here uh, concerning Jesus and and who he is, and also how that mind that is in Christ is supposed to be in us. It's as if he's saying, look, you guys sing this every Sunday in church, right? So you already know this, just have this mind in you. Now, what what does it mean to... For Jesus to empty Himself, what does kenosis mean? And there are, I have found, I've got the the worksheet right here with the the I've got nine theories that people have come up with, um, nine kenotic and sub theories, and uh, so these are theories that pertain to the emptying of Christ. And what does that what does that mean? How did He empty Himself? And they range in in what what. Different people have thought that means. So, Christ, he can empty himself of uh, divine consciousness. It could mean that he emptied himself of the eternity form of being. It could mean he emptied himself of the relative attributes of deity. He emptied himself of the integrity of infinite divine existence. Uh, He emptied himself of divine activity. He emptied himself of the actual exercise of divine prerogatives. And then, so those are the canonic theories. sub theories um, are similar but different. And so uh, you have that he emptied himself of the use of divine attributes. He emptied himself of of the independent exercise of divine attributes. And then he emptied himself of... The insignia of majesty, the prerogatives of deity. Each one of those has a specific meaning, how it's explained. Um, hat tip to a guy by the name of Peterilly, who has written an article summarizing all this and then presenting his own theory of kenosis. So, which is it then? All right, we have all these different theories. <laughs> that's quite a bit. Yeah, and so and that's that's a good question. That's the question about it. What what is it? It must mean some kind of suspension of divine attributes and activities, some suspension of divine privileges and prerogatives. Um, One that comes to mind, you see it in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, is he says, uh, Now restore to me the glory that I had at the beginning. So at least there's some aspect of the suspension of his glory for a moment uh, the, that he, while he was in a body of flesh, that uh, he he emptied himself of that at least, but there are probably other things. Uh, he uh, in Matthew's gospel, he doesn't know. Only the Father knows when uh, he's going to come in judgment, and, and and so I don't know. I don't know that we had ever fully nailed down <clears throat> the mystery of the incarnation, exactly what it means for Christ to have emptied himself, but uh, we, get, we get just different theories about exactly wh- what could it have meant. Um, but uh, what say you, Alex?
1: Well, as you were talking, you mentioned John 17 about Jesus saying, "'Restore to me the glory I had in the beginning.'" Right. Um, glory is the way Paul talks about our resurrection bodies in 1 Corinthians 15 and how uh, the sun, moon, and the stars differ from glory to glory, and that's what our bodies will be like. And so they're not all going to be the same. Uh, that's interesting because for me, I see one sensual idea here as far as how Jesus emptied himself. And I think it's his flesh. I think it's his flesh. Uh, he left his divine flesh. I think supernatural beings are made out of stuff. I don't know what the stuff is. It's just not human stuff. So we'll just call it divine flesh and human flesh. He left his divine flesh. And took on human flesh starting in the womb, which is pretty wild. So we don't see then Jesus performing miracles until after his baptism. And so I think that likely means that those miracles after his baptism was really the Holy Spirit working through him, because that's when he received the Spirit was at baptism. So from that point on, in regards to powers and miracles, the Holy Spirit's working through him, just like the Holy Spirit worked through the apostles, after him. So we kind of got to backtrack and think about a couple of things then. Like, well, okay, he's baptized, gets the spirit, goes into the wilderness, is tempted by Satan. And uh, then he has this temptation that's given to him to make bread from the rocks. And sometimes it's been explained that the, the temptation there is to ravel, unravel you know, the divine power Uh, Break that human boundary and just, you know, take back his divine power and use that for himself. Um, That might be right. However, I think the real temptation there was to use authority that did not come from the Father, because his answer says, you don't live by bread alone, but by every word. That's the authority coming from the Father, which proceeds from the mouth of God. And then Jesus emphasizes this throughout all of John's Gospel. He says uh, in John five nineteen, "I only say what the Father says; I only do what the what I see the Father doing." That's uh, John five nineteen and twelve forty nine. So I think his emptying of himself is the emptying of his divine flesh, putting on human flesh, and uh, and then I think he gets his divine flesh back later. So that jumps into our next question. So that that was our tough text, and it well and, it doesn't stop there; it
0: keeps going, right? <laughs> it's interesting because uh, that that your answer similar to kind of where Picciarelli ends up in his article, um, which is aptly entitled "He emptied himself," um, <laughs> uh, because he he says that the emptying is is um, not so much the suspension of stuff. But it's the taking on of something, and he specifically mentions the taking on of flesh. Um, So, All right. I like this Pete guy already.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He and I are friends now. Well, Nick, it keeps unfolding. We got verse 8. Right. And verse 8 talks about being found in the appearance of a man being humbled, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we know that Christ's human body was killed on the cross, that he was resurrected, uh, and that his body um, after the resurrection looks human still. But the question is, is his body still human after the ascension, right? Acts chapter 1.
0: Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say absolutely. Um... Absolutely. there's a post resurrection appearance of jesus which i think solidifies this where he appears to his disciples after the resurrection in luke chapter 24 verses 36 to 43 and it's there that he shows up in kind of the upper room i believe is the setting for that and he exhorts them to to touch me touch me and see he tells them that he's not a ghost and or some kind of spiritual being because that's what they thought they thought they were seeing a spirit. And he explains, he says, look, a flesh, excuse me, a spirit does not have flesh and blood as you see that I have. And so there's still some, you know, they're still kind of disbelieving. They don't really fully understand what's going on. So he asked them, you guys have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it. Uh, So very human stuff. And I'm going to say, yes, indeed, Jesus's body was human, though, I will add, that it did seem to have some new, um, shall we say, upgrades. All right, like how did he get in the upper room in the first place? Um, He just kind of materializes. Uh, But, um, and I believe that's the body that he went up with was the body, he still has the nail marks in his hands, in his side, he's still got where the spear was driven. And I, I believe he retains that into the heavenly places. Okay. And you say? I'm going to disagree.
1: All right. I'm going to go a different direction. (laughs) (laughs) So I think after the resurrection, his body's human. Um, I think some of those things, the upgrades that you were talking about, it kind of reminded me of a few things that Jesus did during his ministry, like walking on water and uh, all of a sudden, like people were grabbing him to throw him off a mountainside, but then he slipped out of their hands somehow. Right. Um, So I don't know. I don't know if those were upgrades or not. It might be. Um, You bring up a good point, though. Spirit doesn't have flesh and blood as you see that I have. Um, So I don't know. I I have to think about that one because that's a good point. And maybe he's talking about the kind of flesh and blood that you see that he has uh, because angels, uh, spirits, beings, supernatural beings, it might be they just have different kind of uh, stuff or flesh. 1
0: Corinthians 15, different kinds of glory. Yeah, yeah. So
1: here's what I think. So after the resurrection his body's human, but after the ascension, we see him taken up in the clouds, his body, I think, becomes divine once more. I think he puts back on his divine flesh that he emptied himself from uh in the incarnation. So John describes this divine body of Jesus in Revelation chapter one, verses twelve through sixteen. Now I know it makes people nervous when I talk about Revelation, but this is more than <laughs> symbolic language going on in chapter 1 of Revelation because even though there are symbols within that description, there are things within that description that are, that are clearly not symbols because if you think about what angels look like when they're described in the Gospels, um, they're bright, they're shining, they're clothed in white. Uh, think about the empty tomb of Jesus when an angel shows up and the Roman guards who are trained warriors, right? Uh, they don't scare easily. It says, the appearance of the angels terrified them so much because of the power that that angel exuded that it made the guards at the tomb fall like dead men. Right. They're shaken in their boots, fell like dead men. So I think that uh, during the Gospels, Jesus does unveil this divine form one time and one time only, and that's the Transfiguration. And guess whose heavenly forms appear with him? Moses and Elijah. So I think in heaven, this description of his transfiguration, the description of him in Revelation, I think this is his natural, divine form. And, uh, you know, some spirits are disembodied. That's true. Like us, when we die, we become disembodied. We go to the realm of disembodied spirits, the Hadean realm, the Sheol. But uh, some spirits are embodied. And like the angels that we see in Revelation, like the angels we see in the New Testament Gospels, like the angels that we see in the Old Testament, like the two, the two people who are with God when he comes down to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, they had bodies. So in the resurrection, uh, we become embodied once again. But our new bodies will not be human flesh like our old bodies. Uh, I think it will be a, a new type of flesh and it will vary from glory to glory, and that's what I think about that <laughs>
0: <laughs> and here Here's another verse uh to to consider when you're spinning out on it the this verse came to mind when I was thinking about this because uh, Paul says first Timothy two and verse five, there's one God, one meteor between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, right, and so he's there's something about his humanity that he retains even when he goes back to the Father, it seems. Because Paul just says he's he's the man, Christ Jesus. So That's true. Um, got to think but about I'll, that. I agree with you. It's got to be different. Um, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, Paul says 1 Corinthians 15, is it? So, yeah. lot to Interesting. think
1: about. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nick, verse 9... Uh, Jesus is said to have the name that is above every name. And just Paul goes on and on about that. And what is that? What does it mean to have a name that is above every name?
0: Let's see here. He, God has, and okay, so God has highly, here's how my English standard reads. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him. And that word for bestowed is related to our word for grace, So we can say that God has graced Jesus with the highest name. And I believe that name is, there in the text, verse 11, Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And so the term, that's the term, by the way, that's used uh, in our Old Testament uh, Septuagint, when they translated from the Hebrew into Greek, the word that they used to translate the divine name, Yahweh, was Lord Kurios and so um, I think that's that's the name that through the the crucifixion event and through his uh, resurrection and through his ascension all of that whole let's just call it the gospel event is the exaltation and enthronement of Jesus as Lord and so he God graces him with that uh, highest name. That's my take. What's say you, Alex? I'm going to go a different direction on here.
1: Uh, I'm not so sure if it's about, like, what do we say? You know, is this Jesus or Yeshua or Yahweh or Kyrios or Lord or Adonai or all the plethora of names and languages in which we see the names being spoken, even within Scripture? I'm going to go away from the, uh, the actual name, name. Mm-hmm. And go down this path, this conceptual path that has to deal with authority. So I'm thinking it's the idea of authority when he says name. Uh, Stop in the name of the law. What is that? That's authority. Uh, I've transferred my car title into your name. What is that? It's your possession now. You have authority to do with it as you please. Um, Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. So... I think that's what it means, that he has the highest name. He has the highest level of authority. So it's important for people not to think of this as a magic spell. Uh, I'm not saying that you're thinking of it that way, Nick. I'm just saying I have seen people use the name of Jesus as if it was a spell that they could cast on someone or to cast a demon out. That's not quite the idea there. It's not a magic spell. Uh, Using Jesus' name has power, but not because of the vocal utterance that comes out of your mouth. It's because of the authority that you have as a bondservant and representative of Christ. Let me give you an example. In Acts chapter 19, you got these Jewish guys called the Seven Sons of Sceva, and they tried using the the vocal utterance of Jesus. They tried the magic route to use Jesus as a spell to cast out some demons. And you know what happened, Nick? They got beaten up to a naked, bloody pulp by a demoniac. That's right. And what was the demoniac's reasoning? The demoniac straight up says, I don't recognize you. Your authority is nothing. I know Paul. I know Jesus. Who are you? He did not recognize their authority, even though they were uttering the name of Jesus, because they were not true servants and representatives of Christ. And so it's that authority that you bear as you call upon the name of Jesus to do his will, to cast out evil, to spread the gospel. So that's that's what I think. That's his name above every name. It's the top authority which you go as his diplomat, and that means you have authority given to you. That's what I think. Any thoughts, Nick?
0: That oh, makes sense. Yeah? I, I don't have a problem with that. And uh, it reminds me of... Um... Paul says over in Ephesians chapter 1 about uh, how Jesus, he is above every name that can be named. And that did have, at least in uh, Ephesus and the uh, Lycan Valley there, that did have significance for them because they were that was a culture that was steeped in magic. Right. Um, and uh, so they would have maybe—the temptation may have been to add Jesus to their plethora of names to name in order to try— And Paul just says, no, 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 you don't understand. Jesus' name is above all those names. He has authority over every name that you could even think of. So, uh, yeah, that's good stuff. All right. Well, Nick,
1: we're going to jump into cosmology here for a quick second. Verse 10 talks about heaven and earth and under the earth. What is under the earth? I've heard of heaven. You know, we've got angels and God and all that. And I've heard of the earth because that's where I live. So what is under the earth? Why is this mentioned with heaven and earth?
0: so this is um this is how the ancients kind of thought of it that they would class or categorize all rational beings into these three groups um so there was heaven and that was that would be the place where the whole host of heaven live and they recognize jesus's lordship there Uh, and then you have the earth and all people living on the earth And everyone should recognize the lordship of Jesus. Uh, Not everybody does, and that's the unfortunate thing because either you recognize the lordship of Jesus now in time, or you will recognize his lordship at the end of time. It's better to do it now in time to your uh, commendation to him rather than to your eternal condemnation at the end of time. Right. And then the third, and specifically what we're talking about here, what is this under-the-earth business? That would be all those uh, beings in the Hadean realm. That was how they understood Hades was down. It was, um, that's why it was sometimes understood as the grave as well. Sheol and Hades, those were down. You went down to the earth. Um, and so all those in the Hadean realm, they acknowledge his lordship. Um, and so it's that third group that's in view there with the under the earth phrase. Does it make sense? Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, the Bible, in addition to the entire
1: ancient Near East, recognized a three level cosmology the heavens above the earth, the earth, and under the earth, which was the underworld full of disembodied spirits. I agree with that. Nick, verse 12 How do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Is this works based salvation?
0: uh well here's here's the thing um, Paul is calling these Christians and I believe Christians across time and space because although it wasn't written to us, it's written for us. He's calling Christians to collectively work out our salvation, uh which includes not only the act of rescuing but also the the state of safety the my english standard says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling most english translations are going to supply that word own even though it's not in the original language and unfortunately that has led to some individualized theories concerning christianity that it's me and jesus and um you know that's kind of uh, sprouted the um jesus yes church no type movements uh, that aren't new. They've been around for a long time. But it's it's not that we are... We, we are not only working out our own salvation. We're in this together. We struggle for holiness together as the body, the whole church, the whole congregation, in fearful trembling. I think that's a fair way of taking what could be, I guess, a hindiates there. That's a big word for when you see uh, noun... And noun kind of formation, fearful trembling. Um, we're supposed to do this together before the Lord uh, God Jesus Christ. Um, and I think that seeks uh, that, that seeks to to clarify uh, clarify this a bit more. We are for one another. We help one another on the path to ultimate salvation when Christ returns. Um, so it's a collective thing. It's not just an individual thing. We like to do that. We like to personalize stuff, and I think that's okay to a degree, but we can't miss that this is your, all y'all's salvation, that you are to work out together with fear and trembling. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it does. I really like the collective view that you laid out there for us when approaching this text. Uh, It's about us doing it together, and as far as this work's salvation thing the idea could be there is that we are working out of our salvation we have salvation and from that we work and that's just another way of saying what he already said in chapter 1 verse 27 living in a manner worthy of the gospel so the philippians work together then out of the fact that they have salvation already filled with the fruit of righteousness as we discussed last time Mm -hmm. and with fear and trembling based on what christ did for them his authority And the future event of all knees bowing down to Christ, like you said, better now while it's voluntary than later when it's involuntary. Well, Nick, verse 13, it talks about God working in us, both to will and to work for his good
0: pleasure. Is this Calvinism, Nick? How does God work in us? (laughs) Well, and this was the, uh, this was the, I guess the answer to the previous question for me: why it's not a work salvation thing It's because God's the one who works in us; He's the energizer um, uh, here in this uh, verse. He's the energizer in you, in y'all, plural, uh, collective again, here, yeah, yeah, among all y'all. So He's the one who enables the church's work at salvation. Without Him. Um, we're not doing the work all right and really our work would be nothing more than filthy rags in the end so it's god he's the initiator he's the one who began the work and all we do as the church we seek to carry on uh to the end what god began and he also is the one who gives us the means by which we do these things. Uh, He's the one who gives the gift, but he also gives us the means to put the gift into practice. Uh, So the way that I view it, the big word for it, is synergism. Um, So it's not a Calvinistic thing where it's just God working, and it's not just a works-oriented legalist type thing where it's just us working. We cooperate uh, with the work of God that he's doing. We get to join him in his work. He invites us to join him. If you want to say that. Sure. Uh, so that's that's what I see here with God working in us. Uh, what about you, Alex? What do you think? Well,
1: I definitely like the collective approach again as you laid out. Um, the only thing I would go a different direction than what you said was the uh, without him, all, what we would have to offer is just filthy rags. And so that's a verse out of Isaiah And I'm not sure if that's quite applicable outside of a scenario where you have somebody completely hardened of heart and and living in rebellious sin like the Israelites were in Isaiah. And the reason I think that is because of Cornelius in the book of Acts. Before he became a Christian, it said that his offerings and prayers were pleasing to God. And they came up before him as an acceptable sacrifice. And so that doesn't sound like dirty rags, but uh, that's just like a little side note soapbox thing that I like to stand on top of sometimes <laughs> and talk Fair about. Enough. So, <laughs> But I think uh, God does work in us collectively, uh, even though it does say in Ephesians 3.16, the Holy Spirit can strengthen us in our inner man. That's that energizer uh, thing I think you were talking about, or at least it could be related to that. Um, but I think the spiritual resources given to each congregation uh, might even bring in the uh, angelic realm again. Uh, Think about angels being sent to minister to those who will inherit salvation. Uh, Revelations, letters to the seven churches, Jesus writes each one to the angel of each of those churches. So each church has a lampstand. Each angel acts as a light or a lamp on top of each stand, and that imagery comes straight out of Zechariah, which has a lampstand for Israel, and then the heavenly patrolmen, i.e. the angels, as the uh, light or lamp which is said to be also the eyes of the Lord on top of that lampstand. So we might even uh, be considering here that uh, congregational angelic guardians, you know, we talk about individual guardian, angelic guardians. um, What about congregational angelic guardians? You know, God doing things, ministering and uh, providing in ways that we don't understand. We just call it his providence, right? Hmm. And God might be working (laughs) that providence out through his uh, unseen ministers, and that's God working in us in our congregations. That's a, a possibility I throw out there, Nick. Any uh, any thoughts there?
0: That's interesting. That's- yeah, that's, and I don't I don't have a problem with that. Yeah, that's. I mean, if <clears throat> we've, uh, I don't know, have we talked about angels uh, in guardian angels? No, I don't in the think we have before. Um, so uh, I'm not opposed to that idea. Um, in fact, I would think that since we have an innumerable host of angels up in heaven, there's so many you can't count them, why do we only have one angel watching our back? Why wouldn't God give us like an entourage of angels that go with us? <laughs> and so when we gather together and um, as the church, yeah, certainly there would be um, not just one, but angels uh, right there with us as uh, uh, as we engage in our worship. And maybe, you know, we I, I believe also in a hierarchy of angels. Um, that's why we have archangels as right. opposed to just regular angels. That's true. Um, and so could there be, you know, kind of a, a head angel over the Davis Park Church and we have all these angels running around with it? It could be. Yeah. It could be. So. <clears throat> For sure.
1: Well, it's interesting. Nick, verse 15, we have a very... Uh, interesting verse, I think, where yeah. Paul says the Philippians, uh, to all the other people around them, the perverse, crooked generation, the Philippians stand out and appear as lights in the world. How, Nick, are we lights in the world? Verse 15.
0: You know, it, this language reminds me of what we read back in Genesis chapter 1, right? verses 15 and 18. It's like when God created the stars to give light on the earth to shine in darkness well in a similar way christians are the light of the world matthew chapter 5 verse 14 jesus says that Um, we shine forth light um, and i think that may be connected to the good works that we do the um, various good thoughts and ideas that we pursue Any light that we shine is a reflected light. It's borrowed from the light, capital L, of the world, Jesus. That's what he's called in John chapter 8 and verse 12. So we are light bearers in a dark world. We are the vessel or the vehicle through which the true light shines forth. And it's interesting, connected with verse 14, that Verse 15 is connected with verse 14, which says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, complaining or arguing. Again, another translation says, It's as if when we start, when we board the complain train, all right, (laughs) and we start arguing and we start disputing, we start murmuring and grumbling against one another, we actually start clouding our shining, all right, we cloud our light when we do that kind of stuff. So, knock it off, all right? Right. Uh, Get off the complain train. And um, uh, there's nothing. Coach John Wooden, who's one of the most winningest NCAA basketball coaches ever, um, he was at UCLA, took them to several national championships, he would tell his players three things. Uh, Don't whine, don't complain, don't make excuses. And I think that kind of mentality was instrumental in them winning so many national championships. And I think, it, it. listen, if we want the church to win, all right, here's so much bad stuff about the church these days and how it seems like we're losing ground and all that. If you want the church to win? Get off the complain train. Don't whine. Don't complain. Don't make excuses. Get busy working so you don't have enough time to complain and do all that other stuff. That's my take. Yeah. I'll, I'll get off my soapbox <laughs> now, all right? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good stuff That's good stuff Well, the
1: um, lights in the world here I did a little bit of digging into the original language And the word for lights is the Greek word uh, phoster And it means star It means luminary So you were right on track there Thinking about the stars in the uh, book of Genesis uh, It can mean radiance or splendor Which, you know, makes sense What do stars do? They're shiny And the, the word for world there is Cosmos so it's uh, it's not gay, gamma, epsilon like the land. Uh, it means the whole universe. This is universe language, cosmology language, cosmos. And so there's an interesting note that uh, I found about this word, foster for lights uh, or foster. And it's used only twice, Nick, in the New Testament. Here mm-hmm. in Philippians and once in Revelation 21.11. So uh, so I can't help it that that's in Revelation, but we'll talk about it for a second because <laughs> Revelation twenty one eleven describes the new Jerusalem c- coming down out of heaven. Uh, heaven was the sky that you looked up into heaven, and uh, what what's in there? What's up in heaven? Stars. So what's coming down out of heaven? A star. So by the way, uh, just so you're not confused, the church is the new Jerusalem. Hebrews chapter twelve, verse twenty two through twenty three, uh, the church the assembly that's the new jerusalem right that's heavenly zion uh yeah so septuagint greek translation of the old testament uses foster to describe the stars that god created uh in genesis one sixteen and 18 to, to describe the sun and the moon and the stars so here's a theological connection that i might be uh throwing out here here's what here's what i think that might be true since the sun and the moon and the stars are stock Old Testament language for supernatural beings, for divine beings, for angels, and since 1 Corinthians 15, like we mentioned before, talks about different degrees of glory for the sun, moon, and the stars, and then relates that to our resurrection bodies, I think that in our current human flesh, uh, we are, as Paul says, the stars of the universe, but there'll be a day when we'll be revealed in an outwardly form. To be those stars. So outwardly in the resurrection, when we get our divine flesh, our new resurrection bodies, uh, it will reveal to all of creation who the sons of God are, who were the stars all along. And I think that's the event Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 8. Because Romans 8 is a resurrection chapter. And it says, all of creation groans, eagerly awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. So we're already stars... We just haven't transfigured yet. That's what I think. Well, Nick, I think that brings us to the lightning round. Lightning round. Okay.
0: Well, let me get my timer out here, my stopwatch. You know, we normally do this at the beginning, but um, we're doing it here because um, we're nearing the end of the chapter, and there's several things that we can kind of do quick hits on uh, as we kind of close out the chapter here. We'll have a couple more questions after this but um okay well i got my timer ready
1: and uh nick you want to i'll ask you the first question let's do it all right and go nick what is the word of life verse 16
0: it's the message of the gospel not the bible itself uh the new testament still being written of course How about verse 17? Paul talks about a drink offering. What's a drink offering? It's a little worship illusion. A cup of wine, which was
1: never tasted by the worshiper, but completely poured out on the altar, uh, acted as a ritual of
0: pledging complete devotion to God. Verse 19, uh, Nick, who was Timothy? He was a constant traveling companion with Paul, and you can see our discussion on Second Timothy for more information about him. How about verse 25? Who was Epaphroditus? Epaphroditus is known
1: only by this verse in uh, chapter four, verse 18. He's a different person than Epaphras, another coworker of Paul's. Epaphroditus was from Philippi. Epaphras was from Colossae. Verse 25, again, Nick, who was Epaphroditus uh, was Epaphroditus an apostle.
0: Not in the same way that Peter, John, and the rest were. Probably a sent one. He is sent here in this verse 25. So that's the lightning round. Lightning round. All right. Um, did you want to say a bit more about Epaphroditus being an apostle, Alex? Well, I
1: just think it's interesting. There are some other apostles that they're not the 12. Uh, they're not the one untimely born like Paul, First uh, Corinthians fifteen eight. 8. Uh, but they seem to be in the same sense an apostle like Barnabas acts fourteen fourteen or Titus, along with the famous brother, whoever that was, second Corinthians chapter eight, verse eighteen and twenty three brother big name there he goes, <laughs> and uh Romans sixteen seven Andronicus and Junius are called apostles um and Galatians one nineteen James the brother of Jesus, is mentioned as an apostle, so you do have other apostles that are not the twelve, not Paul, but sent ones, I think may. I don't know, maybe that's what they called their missionaries. Wow, so the 19 apostles. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Nick, verse 21, we're getting close to the end of uh, the chapter here. Who are the ones that Paul refers to as seeking after their own interests? Because he's talking about uh, sending Timothy, and he's not going to send anyone else, because everybody else, they just seek after their own interests, but not Timothy. Who's he referring to? Who are those other ones?
0: Yeah, um, so there are a couple of ways of looking at this. One, it could be those who are around him, those who are available to him. Of course, the problem is that doesn't seem to fit Luke and his character. I don't think he'd fall into that category. Unless, I mean, he could be ministering somewhere else, and it's just he wasn't with Paul. Um, He does, Paul does mention that those who are around him are brothers. 4 verse 21 makes that clear. Uh, But for whatever reason, they're apparently not as willing as Timothy to spend and be spent uh for the sake of others. Another theory is um this is kind of a, a sorrowful statement about the present condition of the world. It's just full of selfishness, full of self seeking, and you know, having a brother like Timothy, that's just that's a rare thing. And so Paul is kind of lamenting that. Um so there's a couple ways of looking at it. Well, what about you, Alex? What do you think? Um, I wonder if this could be a throwback to
1: chapter 1 about those who were preaching Christ out of selfish ambition and impure motive. Uh, I think you masterfully answered that last week in our tough text, that these uh, preachers were pro-Christ but anti-Paul. They didn't like Paul being in prison and thought it was a shameful thing and didn't want to be associated with him. But they still had the right gospel. They still had the right message. So maybe that's what uh, Paul has in mind here. These other guys that are going around, these other traveling preachers or whoever they were, uh, they're they're acting out of selfish ambition, but not Timothy. He doesn't act that way. And so I want you to receive him. He cares for you. Uh, maybe Timothy was well-known uh, around the, the ancient world because he was traveling with Paul so much. So I think the Paul knows that Timothy's intentions are pure, And maybe this is, again, contrasting the impure motives of so many other preachers who are disassociating from Paul from chapter 1 that we saw. What do you think?
0: That makes sense. I like that connection. All right. Well, last
1: question, Nick. Verse 30, it says, uh, who was it? Epaphroditus was risking his life to complete what was deficient in the Philippians' service to Paul. How was the Philippians' work deficient? I thought they were doing good stuff.
0: (laughs) Well, um, they were, and so it seems like what Paul is saying here is that the presence of Epaphroditus as making up for the lack of presence of the Philippians. That, that Epaphroditus is making that up. They The Philippians can't be there, so Epaphroditus is doing that in their stead. It's similar to what he says over in um, to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, verse uh, 17, 16, verse 17, uh, where he talks about a couple of brothers and how they made up for your absence, uh, talking about the Corinthians. They, just, they couldn't be there, but there were guys who were making up for that. And I think that may be what Paul has uh, in mind here as well for Epaphroditus and the Philippians. Does that make sense? Mm.
1: Yeah, that's brilliant. Yep, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> that makes complete sense. Well, Nick, that's the end of Chapter 2. And next, sure is. Yep, yep. next week we'll have to uh, get through Chapter 3, and uh, it's a little bit shorter of a chapter. so Still dense, still got a lot of good stuff in Chapter 3. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm loving the book of Philippians more and more. Each week, I hope our audiences, too, uh, definitely had a lot to think about today, a lot of heavy stuff to plow through. But, hey, this is just uh, your audio
0: commentary. Feel free to come back and reference it whenever you want. That's right. We are 25 episodes deep into this now, and we have talked about a lot of other stuff in the Bible. So go into the iTunes Store, go into Google Play, and uh, search for Swordplay and you can find all the episodes there. Leave a review. That'll help us get the word out about this podcast.
1: That's right. And uh I believe the Bible has uh, about a 900 to 1000 chapters, so I think it's 1189. Okay, so maybe in like 20 years, Nick will complete <laughs> Nick and I will complete uh, an episode for every chapter of the Bible. So It'll take about 30 years, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, sometime between now and the year 2050, uh, if you have any questions, send it to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com, swordplaypodcast at com, and you can uh, ask us questions along the way. We'll be sure to answer those in future episodes. Any other thoughts, Nick? Uh,
0: no, not at this time. We'll see you next time.
1: Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Swordplay.